Who are they? How did they get here and where are they now? I'm Tyson Chastain, Director of Alumni Relations with Johnson University, and this is the Sojournal Podcast. The Sojourner Podcast is brought to you by the Alumni Association. Whether you graduated from Central Florida Bible College, Johnson Bible College, Florida Christian College, or Johnson University, you are a part of the alumni family. Join the Alumni Association and help encourage and equip alumni and students as they pursue kingdom-focused vocations. Learn more at johnsonu.edu forward slash alumni. Today, we're joined in the Sojournal podcast by 1967 Johnson University, Tennessee graduate, David Pryor. David, welcome to the Sojournal podcast. Thank you. Happy to be a part of this. I look forward to it. I'm really grateful that you uh, agreed to be a part of this. It's always good to hear from some of our, uh, let's put this politely, more seasoned alumni. So uh, (laughs) I'm I'm glad to have you here. Um, So David, would you mind just kind of giving a general introduction of yourself to our audience so that those who don't know who you are can get a sense of who you are. Well, uh, we'll start, I guess, uh, at Bible College. I attended there from 1962 or 63 to 1967. Graduated then. I married uh, Sharon O'Brien, and uh, we now have uh, three children and seven grandchildren. Tell me about your young life growing up. Were you raised in a Christian home? I, I was. Uh, we attended church for as long as I can remember, uh, but it was a Disciples of Christ Christian church and uh, kind of a liberal church. There wasn't a lot of inspiration or challenge there to really live for the Lord and didn't hear a lot of Bible preached. And uh, some of what we did hear, we did not agree with. But during my high school years uh, was when I came to the Lord. It all happened with my brother singing for a revival in the area where a lot of our cousins and uncles and aunts attended. It was a little country church. He came back that night and was just really excited about it and said uh, said he was going to go back the next night. And we said, oh, they ask you to sing again. He said, no, I just want to hear this man preach. So he came back from that and he said, um, says, I know you all want me to be in church, but he says, I don't want to go to First Christian Church. I want to go to this other church and hear this preacher. He's right here in town. And so we said, well, we'll go with you. And that was the start of change for all of our family. Uh, My dad eventually became an elder of that church, very respected elder. Then that was where I came to really know the Lord. The preacher there was a former graduate of Johnson and also a former missionary to Brazil. And uh, he always uh, quite frequently would remind us there are still millions of people who've never heard the gospel of Christ. And so that became a part of uh, my view of Christianity also was our need for that. I was fortunate enough to be discipled by him and one of the elders there. But when I got into the ministry then, I found myself doing the same thing that this other preacher had done and reminding my congregation about the purpose of the church and that there were still millions of people who'd never heard. And then in 72, I was invited to go on a tour of India, Burma, which is now Myanmar, uh, Thailand, and South Vietnam. And uh, when I came back from that, I was gone for six weeks. When I came back for that, 
as I was hugging my wife, the very first thing that I said was not, oh, I missed you, so good to see you, or any of that. I just whispered in her ear, I said, we've got to start offering ourselves to missions. And uh, she just gave me a real tight hug on that. Uh, She'd always wanted to be a missionary. We started praying then for over two years about uh, where to go, where would the Lord want us, what kind of mission, and so forth. And we interviewed every missionary that came by. Everything sounded exciting, and we would have loved to work with any of them, but we'd pray about it and got absolutely no leading. And I joked with her that uh, after two years, I said, you know, this kind of demoralizing, here we are over and over saying, Lord, here we are, send us. And it's sort of like the Lord's looking down and saying, isn't there anyone else down there that'd like to go? We kind of felt like rejects. But it wasn't long after that uh, that we learned why the silence. Uh, Pioneer Bible Translators was not even in the beginning uh, for those two years. And uh, in fact, uh, when we contacted Al Hamilton to be our uh, camp missionary, he had just started Pioneer Bible Translators uh, maybe about uh, three or four months earlier than that. So when we first heard about it there at camp, it was just amazing. The Lord was calling our children to that uh, and calling us too. And so we resigned our ministry and headed then to Dallas, Texas to begin linguistic training. So that's, uh, that's how we got into missions. And then uh, just praying about where to go and doing all of the studying that it would take to become a Bible translator. And Uh, It was just a very, very interesting time for all of us, a time of real growth for us. Uh, Let's jump back a bit. You said that you were raised in a Disciples of Christ Church until high school. How did your brother end up singing in the choir? I mean, was this this revival at the Disciples of Christ Church? No, it was just a little country church, uh, sort of a non-denominational church. I believe it was sort of like an independent Christian church, like like where we're at now. Uh How did your brother end up singing for that revival? Well, he's, he's very gifted, has a beautiful voice, and uh, he was asked to sing for a lot of civic functions and a lot of family gatherings and everything else, and so uh, they invited him to come and sing for the revival. Hmm. He was he was at that revival then and inspired you and your parents to check it out as well. Yeah, he was uh, so on fire from the preaching that he'd heard He's told us, he said, I heard more scripture tonight than I've heard in a year at this Disciples Church. And uh, so we all decided, well, let's go check it out. And uh, without even consulting my parents, our first Sunday there, uh, he went forward at the invitation and wanted to place membership there. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, the second second Sunday that we were there, uh, I went forward to place my membership. And then uh, two weeks after that, the rest of my family came. And, uh, <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Uh, so who was the minister then? I, th- I guess the minister preaching the revival was the same regular minister of the church? Yeah. Well, no, he was a guest minister. But, oh, okay. Uh, he was actually preaching at another church in my hometown of Stillwater, Oklahoma. And this was a little country church uh, where a lot of our relatives lived. My my grandfather was one of 11 boys, no girls. <laughs> and wow. so most of his brothers, you know, settled in that area. They were farmers and ranchers and so on. And uh, they'd started a little country church out there and had a fellow that was coming to preach from Ozark Christian College. Mm-hmm. And uh, somehow he invited uh, this fellow from Stillwater. His name was Marlon McNeil. 
and uh, Marlon and he and his brother Virgil were both graduates of Johnson. So uh, once he found out that we were really interested, you know, and I mean, we were just coming alive. It was such a change for us. And uh, all this time, you know, I thought I thought I was a Christian. Uh, never heard any sort of uh, swearing or any kind of filthy language or anything in my home. Uh, it was it was really good and uh, loving, loving parents. But um, we just didn't really have a real understanding from all of our years attending this liberal church of what being a Christian was really all about. Hmm. Uh, but uh, Marlon made it pretty clear. And so when I realized, you know, what it was, the kind of decision that I would have to make to be a follower of Christ, then I, I was all in. And I said, okay, uh, I know what I'm doing. I'm giving my life to live for the one that died for me. And that's what I want to do. And uh, when he found out that uh, me and my older brother were so interested, he came out one night to talk to us about going into the ministry. And uh, he made a statement there that confused me. He quoted R.M. Bell, former president of Johnson, uh, who would always say, if you'd be happy doing anything else, you don't belong in the ministry. And I thought, <laughs> I've been happy doing a lot of things. And at that point in my life, I was wanting to go to Oklahoma State University and study to become an architect, as something that I really enjoyed. But uh, it, was, it was really different because the night that he came, I was in my bedroom at my own drawing table working at designing another house. And uh, when he came, I went to meet with him in another bedroom. When he left, I went up and packed away all my drawing tools and cleaned up my drawing table. And uh, that was the last time I was at my table for several months. Hmm. I just, uh, I would come home and I'd start reading the Bible. I'd start praying and thinking through all of this. But uh, the thing that uh, really convinced me was leading my first person to Christ. That was a terrific experience, a real thrill for me. Uh, I even got to baptize that person that night that I led them to Christ. And um, when I went home to bed, then I couldn't sleep. And I was just laying there just thrilled, you know, the, what I'd been able to be used to do. And all of a sudden, I started thinking about that. If I'd be happy doing anything else, I don't belong in the ministry. And I thought, but I have been happy doing other things. But then it just hit me. I've never been this happy doing anything. Mm. And so I said, this is what I want to do with my life. Wow. So that's how the Lord called me into the ministry. That's great. So how old were you at that time? Uh, I was uh, 17. So you were 17 when you brought that other person to Christ? Yes, sir. That's exciting. Uh, I'm assuming then that it was under Marlon's influence that you found Johnson, ultimately decided to go to Johnson instead of to oh, yeah. Oklahoma State. I had never heard of Johnson before, but uh, when I shared with him that I felt like God was calling me into the ministry, he contacted Johnson and had them send me a, a catalog. So I started reading about that. And of course, my dad, you know, he said, hey, there's another Bible college here in Oklahoma City. And he says, you want to go look at that? And I said, okay. We went and we were both very underimpressed. So he let me go on to Johnson. The next year, he wanted me to consider Ozark because that was closer to home. Uh -huh. We went there, and somehow or another, Dad was very underimpressed there. 
and I knew it had a good reputation, but I'd already been at Johnson for a year and really wanted to go back because I was really connecting there. The wonderful part about it is when my dad finally made it to Johnson was for my graduation. And he was so impressed. Uh, he talked with Dr. Eubanks about uh, could he be used there? He was planning on retiring from OSU. And uh, Dr. Eubanks encouraged that. So my mom and dad ended up being part of the Johnson family there, helping out with the administration. So who, who was that then? Who's your mom and dad? Alan and Olive Pryor. They started out as a dorm mom and dad for the boys' dorm. And then dad went on into uh, working with uh, Wilbur Reed Jr. and helping to advertise the college there in the Knoxville community. And people that uh, drive in on Interstate 40 and see the signs pointing to Johnson Bible College, my dad was responsible for getting those signs to direct them there. Is that right? Yeah. And uh, one year, uh, the Knoxville, the city of Knoxville had uh, the picture of the little pond there at Johnson Bible College on their telephone book. Uh-huh. And, right. Uh huh. And my dad was responsible for getting that there also. So he helped get the college known in the in the Knoxville area there. That that is neat. Let's see. You said Marlon McNeil. Have you had any interaction with him over the last several years? Well, not since I've been back from Papua New Guinea. But uh, usually every furlough we would try to connect uh, some. But uh, Marlon was just. Uh, he was just so special to me. He was just sort of like, you know, that's the kind of preacher I want to be. Right. When you made the decision then to go to Johnson, what were you coming to Johnson to do? I, I really wanted to be uh, a minister at that point. But uh, after my freshman year at Johnson, I worked with Marlon in a Christian service camp. This one afternoon we were talking. Marlon really wanted me to become a missionary. And I said, well, Marlon, I said, I just haven't really felt led there yet. I I definitely feel led to go into the ministry. And uh, he just looked me in the eye and he said, David, he said, I believe that every Christian needs to just pray this prayer and say, Lord, wherever you want me to go, whatever you want me to do, whatever you want me to be, you're the Lord. I'm your servant. And he said, I think every Christian should pray that. And I was still very much new in Christ, but it sounded good to me. And I said, well, I, I, can't, I can't argue that. So that afternoon, I found a place to go alone and pray, and I prayed that prayer. And the Lord didn't say, okay, I'm going to send you to missions. I, there wasn't an immediate call to become a missionary. But what did take place was at that point, it was all settled. If he ever did call me into missions, There would be no resistance, no argument. It was already settled in my mind. He's the Lord. I'm his servant. And whatever he wants me to do or be or go, I go. Mm. When the call finally came to go into Bible translation, it all happened very quickly. (laughs) Uh, We heard our first uh, presentation about the Bible translation ministry on a Monday. And uh, that night when we were putting our kids to bed, Uh, each one of them separate from each other, not even knowing the other one had prayed this. Lord, when we go to our tribe, (laughs) then they had specific requests. And Sharon and I were just looking at each other like, oh my goodness, what's happening here? I told Sharon beforehand, you know, when I called Al to ask him to come, 
I told Sharon after I hung up because he told me, he said, oh, Briar, wait till you hear about what I'm into now. He said, boy, you're going to be so excited. I'll have your name on the dotted line by the end of the week. <laughs> and uh, when I hung up, I just told Sharon, I said, Sharon, we know Al. We have got to make sure that this would be the Lord leading, not Al, you know. Mm. And so we were going into that week kind of uh, resistant but, oh, my goodness, it, it was just incredible. The very first film strip, which shows you how long ago it was, uh, was put out by Wycliffe, and it was entitled Not Worth the Bother, but the not was crossed out, indicating that they are worth the bother. So, you know, the Monday's mission presentation, the Tuesday's mission presentation, and the Wednesday's, pres Wednesday's presentation, Sharon and I finally talked, and I said, Sharon, how are you feeling about this? I don't know, but it seems like the Lord's calling us into this. The, you know, he's waited for so long, you know, to give us any direction. But I said, I feel the pull now. And she said, well, I do too. So we went forward that night at Vespers and uh, committed our life to Bible translation. Went home on Friday and called a special board meeting and uh, told them I was resigning and asked them to waive the three-month notice because I wanted to leave in two weeks. <laughs> and uh, they said they were kind of shocked by it all. And uh, they asked me if I had any support raised. I said, no. And uh, so they had all kinds of questions. Well, how are you going to do that? You know, with all the expenses you're going to run into. And uh, Tyson, really, I didn't know, but I was not the least bit hesitant. Uh, it was just hard to explain the, the conviction that I felt when I, I told him, I said, guys, all I know is God's calling us into this. And if he's calling us into this, he's going to provide. Had a very interesting story about the first time that we spoke as missionaries. It was on a Wednesday night. It had snowed four inches that day, and the only there were only 21 people there, and they were all part of the missions committee. At that point, I didn't have a missions presentation. I just preached a sermon on missions. I said, well, we don't have a missions presentation yet. After I finished my sermon... I said, are there any questions? And for every single question that they ask, like, where are you going? When are you going? How much is it going to take? What's it going to be like? I didn't have an answer. And so we were staying with the minister of the church that night. And when we got back to his house, his wife asked Sharon, uh, says, let's go out in the kitchen, make some hot chocolate. And he grabbed me by the arm and he says, I want to see you in the living room. So I went in there. And he said, David, he said, I checked up on you before you came here because this is a new mission. He says, I know Al. I just wanted to make sure what he was wanting our church to get into. I said, okay. And he said, well, I know you had a very successful ministry there. And he said, the people didn't want you to leave. And I said, no, they didn't. And I said, they would have been so happy if I could have stayed on. He said, you know, you didn't have a single answer for any of the questions that were asked tonight. And I said, yeah, I understand. He said, okay, I'm going to be very frank with you. He says, I think you're crazy. <laughs> and uh, I said, well, I said, uh, Lloyd, I said, I don't want to elevate myself to the standard of Abraham. I said, but we have something in common here. And he said, what's that? I said, remember when the Lord called him, he called him to get up out of his country, away from his family and go to a land that he would show him. And Abraham got up and went not knowing where he was going. Mm. And I said, all Sharon and I know is the Lord has called us into this ministry and we're going. 
and he will let us know where and when at the appointed time. But I said, uh, we're, we're we feel the call, we're going. And he was just stunned. He said, well, I'll try and share this with the rest of the mission board. He said, maybe that'll make a difference. And he told me later that uh, when he did share with them what I'd said, said there was silence there for about a minute and a half. <laughs> no one spoke. And then finally one of them said, let's match his faith. <laughs> and uh, they became our largest supporting church. You know, we you went down a, a good path of this call to missions and ministry, but you're talking about Sharon. We don't even know who she is at this point. So d- between freshman and sophomore year, you you had gone to this service camp or something. So where did Sharon come into this? My junior year, uh, she rode down to college with uh, the first tenor in the quartet that I was part of. And uh, I had met her when she'd come down before just to look at the college, but I never got a chance to talk with her. So when I got to college and uh, the first tenor was there, is Dave Ziegler, if any of them know him. I said, hey, did Sharon O'Brien come with you? And he said, yeah, she did. I said, oh, I'll go over and welcome her to the college. So I went over there and asked her if she'd like to just walk around. I said, maybe I could show you parts that maybe you didn't get to see or answer more questions. And we got as far as going from the old girl's dorm to old main. And then we just sat on the bench, the cement bench right outside there. And we talked for about two and a half hours. Hmm. And uh, it was it was amazing. Uh, when I was walking her back to the dorm, I thought, oh, I never dreamed there'd be someone like this. You know, just she had such a heart for the Lord and so devoted to the Lord. I thought, boy, the, this is one I want. And she shared with me later that she felt the same. Hmm. And so we were together then for my junior and senior year and then got married after my senior year. Such a perfect fit. What was dating life like <laughs> at that time at Johnson? This was back during the time when there was supposed to be a 16-inch rule between the <laughs> couples. And uh, you weren't supposed to, uh, you know, hold hands. There was no kiss goodnight at the dorm or anything like this. Everything, you know, was supposed to be very much out in the open and public. And uh, I did get called in once uh, by the dean. He felt like uh, that I was standing too close to her. This during the winter. <laughs> and uh, there were several other couples there right there at the dorm saying goodnight to each other. And, and uh, we were just talking about things. That, and uh, evidently, Dean Black saw, saw us and he called me in the next day and said, uh, that was a little bit too close. He said, you need to keep your distance. So... <laughs> <laughs> Wow. So that was, it was kind of rough dating back then. <laughs> well, apparently it was all good because you all ended up together and have had quite a journey since. Well, I do I do have a confession to make. I have to do what Ron Wheeler did. Uh, he was speaking uh, one time for chapel. And President Bell mentioned that, uh, that Ron and his wife, you know, were engaged during their time there. And he said, but I never saw them in any situation, you know, where I would question that they just seemed to be very obedient to all the rules and everything like this. You could see Ron just up there kind of bowing his head a little bit. (laughs) And so when he finally got up to speak, he said, President Bell, he said, I'm sorry. But uh, he said, we had some good hiding places. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my goodness. We were able to just, you know, steal a kiss every now and then. But, you know, we we tried to stay on the up and up. So, 
This is Dr. Ron Wheeler, our current faculty member on the English. Uh, no, not Ron. Sorry, Glenn Wheeler. Ron's oh, Glenn dad. Wheeler. Okay. Oh, that even yeah. explains more than Glenn Wheeler. Oh, yeah. my goodness. <laughs> so. <laughs> I love it. That's fun. They, they were good rules to sort of, you know, help us, you know, preserve our morality. But, uh, you know, when your love's growing, you know, you just love to give them a hug, you know. Mm-hmm express some sort of physical affection so but we had to put a damper on that quite a bit what about other experiences at johnson what do you remember about your experience socially or academically what are some highlights that jump out at you i think my freshman year was the toughest because uh here i i was all gung-ho i loved the lord i wanted to be used uh so inspired by the apostle paul and all that i'd read in his epistles and so on and yet uh, here I was, and I was getting so much head knowledge faster than I could put it into life application. And uh, it just hit me, you know, here I've got four years more here, and uh, then I'll be preaching to people who've been a Christian longer than I've been alive. And I'm supposed to be a help to them. And I, I just felt, you know, I'm still so new in, in all of this. I just don't know if I measure up. I don't know if I can measure up. I was just about ready to throw in the towel. But Professor Cyril Simpkins had uh, two sons. One was Ronnie, and he was already married and had children. And he was one guy that I really looked up to. And so I just asked him one day, I said, can I come and talk with you? And he said, yeah. So we went and he asked me what the problem was. And I tried to explain, you know, I I just don't know if I'm the guy. I, I don't know if I can do it. I just... I feel like I just need to throw in the towel and go home. And uh, he took me to James, the first chapter, where it says, My brethren, count it all joy when you face trials of many kinds, knowing this, the trial of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work that you may be mature and complete and not lacking anything. And I said, oh, whoopee, this is so great. (laughs) And he said, I know how you're feeling. But he said, what's next? I've got to develop perseverance. And I said, I know that. I said, I, here I am ready to throw in the towel. I guess I don't have much perseverance. He says, these trials help you develop that perseverance. And uh, then he said, keep reading. And then I said, uh, perseverance must finish its work so that you'll be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And I said, that's what I want. And he said, well, you know how you're going to get it now. And I said, I feel like I'm in a rut, just spinning my wheels, not getting anywhere. And he said, no. He said, Dave, growth is cyclical, but it's on an incline plane. So the circle keeps going up that hill. And he said, your highs get higher and your lows don't get as low. He said, it's just all part of growth. And these are the two things that I remember most about that. And uh, that stuck with me my whole life, you know, and it's been a real encouragement. Also, at the end of my freshman year, I went to Jim Pearson, who was our counselor for our class that year. He was kind of shocked that I was coming to him. He said, Dave, what's the matter? So I started telling him, you know, all of the things, you know, the complications and how I felt and all this. He asked me one question and it cleared up everything. He said, how's your prayer life? Oh, that's all I needed. I said, I know what I need. Thank you. My freshman year at Johnson was a was a time of real growth for me, and I, I'm so thankful for it. Mm. My first ministry was with uh, a new church beginning in Asheboro, North Carolina. My second ministry was in a church that celebrated its 100th anniversary while I was there in uh, 
Falls Mills, Virginia, near Bluefield, Virginia. And uh, we were there for five years. And then uh, because of a mission trip that I took in uh, 1972, kind of changed things around. And uh, we ended up then being missionaries to Papua New Guinea for 23 years, doing Bible translation for the Kire language group there. At what point did did you and Al and Sharon make this connection regarding Al starting PBT and and getting you guys excited about it? Well, I met Al while I was at Johnson and uh, got to know him. He's a real likable fellow, easy to get to know, a lot of fun to be around. Found out that he only knew of two people in the Christian church that were in the Bible translation ministry. And so he had been hearing about that, and he thought, that's what we need to do. There are so many languages yet to go. We need to get people in Bible translation. Mm -hmm. So he started Pioneer Bible Translators Recruiting Service. And this was all he wanted to do was just recruit, travel around, and try and recruit people to go. He actually ended up then being the first president of PBT for a short term and relinquished that fairly early on. After he stepped down from being president, started another mission organization to, or another recruiting service. We, we just kept up with him and we knew that uh, he was doing something with Bible translation. And so I called him to see if he'd be camp missionary. And that's, that's how he came that year. What were the years? You said 23 years in Pioneer Bible Translators, Papua New Guinea. What, what were the years? We uh, finally got to go in 1977. And we came back on furlough in November of 2000. But uh, my wife uh, was diagnosed with breast cancer while we were finishing up the translation of our New Testament. She was having to undergo uh, radiation therapy for the cancer. While she was going through that, her parents' health just really bottomed out. So we moved them down to uh, where we were at, where we are now, here in Kingston. But uh, it was three and a half years before the Lord called either one of them home. And in the midst of all of that, I was asked to come on part-time for six months as disciple or as associate minister. And at the end of six months, they asked me to come on full-time. And uh, we were at a place where, as far as we were concerned, we wanted to go back to Papua New Guinea and finish the Old Testament. But we had to be honest with our supporters. We said... uh, We need to be here for Sharon's folks. And so we said, you know, whatever you want to do about support, if you want to send it elsewhere to people who are on the field doing something, go ahead. And little by little support dropped off. We just had to tell them we fully intend to. We very much want to. We just don't know if and we don't know when. Mm -hmm. And uh, so there it was. And then by the time that the Lord had called both of them home, we didn't have enough support to go back. But I did have a full-time position here as associate minister. So we've been here ever since, staying connected with PBT as members until just last year. And then figured that we were just too involved here to be as involved as much as we could be or wanted to be with PBT. So we felt it best to go ahead and resign, but to keep us on the volunteer list anytime we could help out, we'd be glad to. So that's where we are. Gotcha. You said that you were just finishing or you had finished the New Testament before you left? We finished it, but uh, this was another good thing that the Lord did. We had to go to Australia first for surgery for Sharon. And uh, 
we were down there for a while and then we came back and we thought, boy, if we really push, we can finish the translation and do everything, not only finish it, but double check it, check it with our committee, do it with a, you know, a peer check with one of our fellow missionaries, and then get it all on the computer and get it ready to send to the printer. Hopefully we can get that done. And uh, we finished the last thing that made it ready to send off at 3.30 on Friday afternoon before boarding the plane the next morning at 7. <laughs> so, wow. But we did finish. <laughs> but, uh, you know, when we came back and we were working like uh, anywhere from 12 to 16 hours a day, Sharon would just lay on the couch until we got so many pages done. And then she'd get up and then she'd enter that onto the computer. And then she'd go back and rest. And our youngest daughter fixed the meals for us and so on. And a lot of things that we thought, boy, we're we going to finish or not. But we did. Mm. So got her done and uh, were able to board the plane the next morning, totally worn out. <laughs> <laughs> Has anybody stepped in the gap to do teaching or carry on any of the work that you all had done? No, unfortunately not. Most of the new recruits want to go into a program of their own. We did leave behind a, a pretty strong church there. They did have the New Testament. We had started uh, four different vernacular preschools to teach kids how to read and write their own language before they even went to school. Hmm. And the amazing thing was they could do it. They were reading from parts that we'd already translated and could read their own mother tongue, no problem before they ever went to first grade. So that, that was really encouraging. It was harder for the adult literacy because uh, by that age, they don't have good eyesight. They feel like, oh, we're too old to learn how to read and so on. So uh, we recorded some of the scripture so that they could listen to it. That was a big help. And then uh, our co-translator would do scripture and use programs in the different villages and uh, try and get a lot of people there for that. So things were going and uh, seemed like they were using the New Testament. Uh, so everyone else felt like, you know, well, got that much there. We'll go to another group. So mm -hmm. no one's stepped in to finish the program. Interesting. Through the experience that you had in PNG, tell me, tell me about a time where you saw God show up. Very, very often he showed up. It was just the, the marvelous thing was when people would come to faith and take a stand against, you know, what they believed about the evil spirits because they were animists and they believed that evil spirits can inhabit water, trees, stones, you know, things like this. A lot of people claim to be the papa of a particular spirit, that they've learned how to take control of him to work curses and things like this, or to get extra help for certain things, but they live in fear of, of them. And uh, the way that they discipline their kids, you know, is uh, you better behave or the evil spirit's going to get you, you know. Hmm. So just the teaching that we did little by little and seeing people come to faith using, you know, the Lord and his love and his power to protect and uh, his power to overcome the evil spirits. Uh, and then see them take a stand like this uh, for the village, do it fearlessly, and then see the Lord reward them for that. One of the young men knew that uh, his uncle 
kept this one mask that they believe was carved by evil spirits because it was done with skills that they didn't think that any of them had the ability to, to do. He just really felt like, you know, there's this uh, sing sing or celebration coming up and they're going to use that mask and it's just going to be back to the evil spirits. And uh, he knew where his uncle kept it. And so he went into his house and he told his uncle, I'm getting that mask to destroy it. And uh, he brought it outside and uh, just hollered out to the rest of the village, I'm destroying this mask, you know, this particular spirit. And everyone came running and, oh, oh, no, don't do that. Don't do that. You know, we'll all suffer. And he just chopped it to smithereens. And then they were just, oh, you're going to die. You're going to die. Your kids are going to die. You know, all sorts of things are going to happen. Nothing happened. Except people began to realize that uh, the power of Christ was much stronger than the power of the evil spirits. Mm. And uh, we had several power encounters like that, you know, where uh, things happened where spirits weren't able to work. And uh, the people did not live in fear. They lived in faith. And this, this was just so exciting, you know, to see the older men who were really, really entrenched in all the cultural ways turn it over to the Lord and uh, decided they were going to believe in him. They wanted to go to heaven. They were trusting Christ for salvation. It was just, just incredible. Uh, one of the men that helped me understand the culture the most was probably my greatest friend outside of my co-translator. I'd ask him to go to a cultural anthropology workshop with me, and he said he'd be glad to go. And I said, well, there's conditions. You've got to tell me the truth. You've got to answer my questions so I can know what the culture believes. I've been here long enough to know that you can't say, oh, this doesn't have anything to do with it. I said, I know that it would. If you go, you've got a promise. And if you break that promise up there, we'll turn around and we'll come home because it's not going to help me. He didn't come back and see me with a definite answer for three days, but the third day came back and I asked him, I said, have you made your decision? He said, yeah, I'm going with you. And I said, well, you remember the conditions? And he said, yeah. But David, he said, I've not been able to sleep. I just lay there at night and think, why do I know all of this evil stuff? It's never done our people any good. It's always caused us to live in fear. We die in fear. And, and here I'm the one with all of this knowledge, and I'm the right man to pass it on because I know it all. But, you know, I'm thinking, why me? Why me? God spoke to me. And he said, you know these things so that you can tell David so that he can translate my word for your people. After that, he said, I was at peace. I went to sleep, got up this morning, and I'm coming to tell you I'm going with you. <laughs> and my goodness, did I learn things that I don't think any of the other missionaries knew. Uh, it was everything we needed to know. And so we were able to bring that into our translation because some things you can't translate because you know how they're going to take it. And yet you can't change the translation around to where you say it, you know, to explain it all for them. You, you've got to be true to, to what's there. But it is a meaning-based translation. But uh, it was able to help so much because when we would do our village checking, you know, like, is this communicating? What's it communicating? And we would ask them, okay, in your own words, you tell me what this means. And then they would actually bring in the things, you know, that was skewing their their perception but they understood the word of God and that this was saying this and, 
So he was just tremendous help. All along the way, the Lord wants these people, and he'll be with you. He'll be everything that you need him to be during this work so that those people can have his word. Wow. So I was thrilled to be a part of it. <laughs> wow, that's that's quite a story. That's that's tremendous. David, our, our time has flown, and I can't let you go without asking you a couple more questions. But thank you very much for sharing your life and your journey uh, and your mission experience with those who are going to listen in on this podcast. Uh, a couple other questions, though, that I do want to throw out at you. One, considering your entire span of uh, your walk with the Lord, what is something that you would really want other people to consider or know? Th- think about college graduates, you know, uh, Johnson graduates who are getting ready to enter ministry. What's something that they really need to know before they get out there in the work of the, of the kingdom? I'm convinced that after four years of Johnson, they know what they need to know. But the question is, is that your passion? Is that why you're there? Are you completely sold out to be a part of the ministry and and labor to get the word out, to make disciples who will make disciples and to be sending people everywhere? The ministry is not just, you know, a paid position to preach sermons on Sunday and things like this. You're, you're leading people. You want to see life change. You want to see other people grow in their commitment and their devotion. And uh, I, I've often encouraged other people, you know, to pray that prayer that Marlon challenged me to pray. You know, whatever you want me to do, whatever you want me to be, wherever you want me to go, you're the Lord. I'm your servant. And I think that everyone in the ministry you know, needs to have that same sort of passion and devotion. So it's, you know, you know how to preach, you know a lot about the Bible and so on. But the the question is, why? Why are you doing this? Are you one with the Lord in your heart, in your mind about why you're in the ministry? I I think that makes all the difference. Once you have that that passion, it's going to lead you and the Lord's going to be able to direct you and use you in ways that he couldn't otherwise if you're just sort of like, uh, oh, I'm going into the ministry, you know, and I'll do calls and things like this and teach and so on. No, why? You know, what's your purpose? What's your passion for going into this? And I would just encourage them to really just be sold out and uh, totally committed to the Lord. I, I just want them to love the Lord like he's loved them and uh, just give themselves to be a a part of what he's wanting to do in this world. You know, that's excellent advice for more than just college graduates. I mean, any of us who are in kingdom work, why? It needs to be passed on. Needs to be passed on to the church members too. Yes. You know, because it's not just, you know, I go to church every Sunday. Why? Well, I serve and do this and this for church. Why? Is this what the Lord wants you doing? Do you ever pray about, you know, Lord, whatever you want me to do, and, and all that. We've just got to live that way. And um, I think if we, if we don't, we're selling the Lord short mm. and we're selling ourselves short too, because we're robbing ourselves of some marvelous blessings of how God can use us for his glory. Mm. Yes. The last question I'm going to give you just a moment to think about while I do a commercial. Let's pretend that for the next 60 seconds, Everybody in the world is going to hear the words proceeding from the mouth of David Pryor. What is David Pryor going to say to the world in 60 seconds? 
While you think about your answer, let me remind our listeners, the Sojourner Podcast has been brought to you by the Alumni Association of Johnson University. Whether you graduated from Central Florida Bible College, Johnson Bible College, Florida Christian College, or Johnson University, you are a part of the alumni family. Join the Alumni Association and help encourage and equip alumni and students as they pursue kingdom-focused vocations. Learn more at johnsonu.edu forward slash alumni. So David Pryor, a 1967 graduate of Johnson University, Tennessee, and a 23-year missionary in Bible translation in Papua New Guinea with Pioneer Bible Translators. What one-minute message would you give to the world? I, I think that, that what I would tell them is uh, what I saw on, the, on a plaque in my grandparents' house. It just said very simply, only one life will soon be passed, and only what's done for Christ will last. And I think that too often that we forget that we are going to stand before the Lord and give an account for the way that we've lived, why we lived like we did. I, I want to hear two words from God. Well done. And I would encourage people to live their lives that way because heaven is real and God loves us and wants to reward us for our faith and our love just to stand before him and see him smile makes everything that you go through in life here, like Paul said, it's nothing, you know, compared to the glory that's going to be revealed in us. And I just want people to believe that and live for that. If they can do that, their life's going to take such a turnaround and change and be so much more fulfilling. I hope they do. Excellent words. David, this has been tremendous. I have really enjoyed the opportunity to get to know you further and uh, learn about your ministry and all that the Lord has done. And thank you so much for sharing uh, some of those lessons that you learned with those who are a part of the Sojourner podcast. David Pryor, class of 1967, thank you for being a guest on the Sojourner podcast today. Well, thank um, you for letting me be a part of this, Tyson. The Sojournal Podcast is a production of the Alumni Relations Office at Johnson University, edited by Tyson Chastain, music by Loyal Love, podcast graphics by Rachel Woolard. Tune in to other Sojournal Podcasts, dropping each Monday on Anchor FM, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more. Thanks for listening.